Hello, folks. This is Princess. You are listening to the Millennial Mustard Seed Podcast. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to share with your friends. Welcome back to the show. I got a great episode in store for you guys. I have Aleko here from the Intelligent Design Collective. It's a really unique conversation. Aleko spent 10 years abroad teaching in Asia and in Europe and, you know, just kind of traveled all around. And uh, he's got a background in physics and science. And, and this is the kind of episode where we really look at the physical world, the material world, and dive into the fabric of the universe guys come on it's me right so i'm looking at it i'm i'm hashing out and asking questions like where's the boundary between the tangible world and the spiritual realm you know i kind of push the bounds from my uneducated very curious perspective seeking to get a better understanding of how this science collected information of the modern days that we live in how that can depict the reality of the world we live in in accordance with what God says, his design, this is his creation. And I think it's really important that we slow down and we hear each other out. It's never been my idea to try to make you guys believe what I believe. The idea here is that you take this journey with me. We ask critical questions and we make critical individual choices about the information. And plus you guys, it's entertaining. All right, that's enough of me talking. Aleko shares with us a lot of information, a near-death encounter. Oh, this is a good one, you guys. What a captivating conversation. Are you ready? Let's go. I spoke to Fire Theft Radio. I was in England, and there was a train going by about every four minutes. So I, thankfully, I had a pretty decent microphone that was able to mostly omit that from the recording but if you listen carefully you might be able to hear it i live in a townhouse on a one-way in town i got like neighbors on like every side of me it gets a little noisy so i love the idea of us starting early on the holiday today because most people are probably sleeping in now are you still in philadelphia or where are you now i grew up in montgomery county which is like the suburbs of philadelphia Right now, I actually live closer to the city of Reading, Pennsylvania. So if you're familiar with Monopoly, the Reading Railroad. I am. Yeah, man. So that's <laughs> actually an interesting area. Yeah, it sounds like it. It sounds really fascinating. Well, your story sounds more fascinating to me, man. You just spent 10 years abroad teaching and you spent time in Vietnam. You just came from England, right? So now you're back in the States. I am, yes. Yeah, it's a little lengthier than that, but uh, that that's about that's about it. Yeah, you're a teacher. Not anymore. Not anymore. So uh, I became a biology, chemistry, and physics teacher about eleven years ago. I taught IGCSE curriculum, so that's that's British curriculum, and I was also a teacher trainer. So I taught pedagogical standards. So um, we encouraged. We more or less we taught teachers how to train or how to how to um, inculcate students in a way that they would remember the material in a meaningful way. Um, so that included everything from Bloom's taxonomy, like high order thinking skills, and what that is more or less is teaching something to learn it. 
So for example, if you say, if you do a, like a graduate level degree, you often write a dissertation, right? You're writing on a subject that you don't know much about, or maybe you, you have a, you know, sort of fleeting experience with, right? And the reason they do that at the graduate level is because, um, Bloom's taxonomy is this this hierarchy of learning, and at the very top of the hierarchy, it more or less says teach something to learn it. Right? It's um, you're getting you're getting the students to explain something back to you, or you know create an experiment or create a project in a way that they'll remember it years from now. So you know if a student does you know a homework assignment, or they're able to maybe just you're teaching and they're daydreaming. They might even be able to, you know, regurgitate what you just said, even if their mind is somewhere else. That's what they call a low-level thinking skill. But if you can get somebody to do a project or to do some type of report and actually teach you, um, they're going to remember it in a more meaningful way. So uh, we taught high-order thinking skills. We taught... Um, uh, constructivist classrooms, getting students to work together. We, we more sort of, um, I won't say progressive, but I'll say modern style of teaching as opposed to the the typical top down. And I started in China, so I was in China for five years, and uh, you know, I was, I guess you could call me maybe an agnostic. Um, I was raised in a Greek Orthodox household, but um, you know, we weren't really. We were Christmas, Easter only Christians. As you had mentioned to me earlier, you said you came from that background as well. Yeah. Um, I remember my father, you know, just growing up, you kind of, I, I think this is, is quite common, I guess, maybe in Mediterranean households, but it was, you know, the, he almost expected us to you know, be bringing girls home or, you know, maybe be not so kind about it, you know, and say, say kind of things that wouldn't be considered politically correct at all nowadays. Like, are you gay? You know, why aren't you? Why aren't you bringing girls home? And uh, so there was this pressure almost to do things that were counterintuitive to what Christ has asked us to do. And so, yeah, so long story short, uh, I had worked in Las Vegas, my hometown, up until I was about 25. And um, then I got married and my wife is from England. She's from a little town north of London. And she suggested that we go on a trip to India and Thailand and I thought, okay, that, that could be a lot of fun. I've, you know, the only, the only trips I've ever done were to Hawaii and Greece, basically, um, and Florida a bunch of times, I think. So we, yeah, we left. And while we were in India, uh, she said, hey, look, I found, I found us teaching jobs in China. Do you want to give it a try? And my background is biochemistry. So I thought, okay, that could be a lot of fun. Yeah, why not? So I began teaching, really enjoyed it. And, you know, we, we got hired on to international schools that were really, there was a sort of um, a medley of students. You had, you know, a, probably a large portion of them were, were mainland Chinese, but you had German, Japanese, Italian, you know, English students that were there learning. So it was all done in English. And uh, yeah, it was good fun. While we were there, probably back in 20. 2011 or 2012, oh, it was 2012. I was involved in a street fight uh, where a, a guy nearly hit uh, my wife with his car, and I got pretty aggressive with him. And you know, I hit him, but um, I, I found out very quickly that uh, you know, did you ever watch the old Jackie Chan movies or old Bruce Lee movies? <laughs> Dude, I'm any chance? Thinking that I'm like, what happened? <laughs> 
So, so okay, most, I would say that, that I've encountered most folk in China, and I, I've met quite a few because we traveled to roughly 35 cities in China while we were there. Um, I don't know that they would know Kung Fu per se, but there is an accurate thing about those Jackie Chan movies, and that's it. If you start a, a fight with one person, you know, 20 of their friends will go and grab gardening tools and start beating up on the person who started the fight. And it, they don't play fair at all. And we've seen that time and again, just it, it escalates quickly. Like, you know, two people will start shouting at each other. One will shove and then you'll see guys drop out of nowhere with gardening tools and just start bludgeoning the person. And it is brutal. Um, so I hit the guy and while I was shouting him down because he, he, he wasn't going to fight me until his friends showed up. Um, I felt a thud in my back and I had didn't know what it was, but I turned around and I saw a guy holding a shovel essentially. And I had a nightstick. It was like a telescoping sort of police nightstick in my bag. And I thought, okay, all right, we're getting into a fight now. My wife and I were biking through uh, near Wuhan, China, and I started to walk over to my bike, but I noticed it was hard to move my left leg. And I, I thought maybe, you know, there was adrenaline going, so you're not really thinking that clearly. But as I went to back, so to bend over to get my bag and get the nightstick out, I couldn't. And I felt my back and uh, I guess a hunk of my back came out and it was on my hand. And I was bleeding and I noticed my shorts were completely wet. I was losing blood really quickly. So my wife you know, jumps in between us and starts shouting at the guy. And out of nowhere, so I should give more context to, so you maybe understand the significance of this. China doesn't have good Samaritan laws. So people will often get hurt in China. And we've seen this plenty of times. Uh, people will often get hurt and nobody will help them. So you'll see like a, a seven-year-old girl who maybe, you know, got clipped by a car and she'll just be lying there, you know, to see people walking by her, not doing anything. Because in China, if someone were to want to, they could point at someone and say, that person is responsible. And then that person would have to pay for their hospital bills. So oftentimes it would be only my wife and I go, coming to someone's aid if we would see somebody getting hurt severely, Right. It, it, it's really crazy. There's a lot of stuff we don't, my wife and I don't talk about with regard to China because we're like, nobody would ever believe this if we shared it. But wow. yeah, it, it just really insane. So I guess the significance of it is, is this man just rolls up with his three wheel farming motorcycle and gestures me to get in. And uh, I found out later that my wife had prayed about it at the time because she was a, she was an incredible Christian or she is an incredible Christian. So, yeah, uh, he threw us in the back of the motorcycle and um, wheeled us off to the hospital. And I, I was I was shaking and shivering, so I was losing blood quickly. Uh, my heart was pounding and probably only a few minutes away from death. But uh, when we got to the hospital, I found out that one of my students' parents was one of the surgeons there. And she immediately started helping us. She applied pressure. Um, you know, she stitched me up and, uh, you know, they did cat scan and yeah, it was, uh, a really pretty, pretty insane. You know, I, it was also, there was a bit of humility added to it all because a lot of the teachers that worked under me, I was, I was managing the school as well. A lot of the teachers that worked under me showed up 
before I got stitched up, they were wheeling me through the hospital with my pants down because there was so much blood they couldn't figure out where the wound was. So they just they just dropped my pants and I was just on this uh, you know rolling bed or whatever it's called a gurney and uh, you know basically my my ass was being paraded to the entire hospital. It was <laughs> you know just this really humbling thing and. All of my teachers were showing up and saying, "Hey, are you okay? What happened? What happened?" And uh, you know, I, I couldn't think of anything to say, but how how do I look? You know, but uh, yeah. Um, so yeah. Long story short, um, the press they 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 stitched me up, they they stabilized me, put me in a hospital room, and the pr- you could see like loads of the press trying to get in to talk to me to ask me questions because. It was, a, I mean, it was a small Chinese city, but a small Chinese city basically is like 5 million to 8 million people. Um, it was just outside of, of Wuhan in the Hubei province. So that's a pretty famous city, I, I think, for the last two years. But um, okay. uh, so the press was trying to get in, but there was an armed communist police officer uh, that was standing at the door and very sort of ominously smoking a cigarette and watching me. So... You know, naturally, I, I knew that I, I was going to be okay. I don't think any internal organs were, were hurt, thank God. But I think the thing that was the most intimidating was I couldn't really move that well. And there was a guy there, you know, from a an authoritarian, a representative from an authoritarian government just ominously standing over me for what, what was the entire night. He just stood there. So naturally, I began praying. And I said, uh, God, I could use your help here. And I also said, you know, if you're real, can you, can you give me some, some clarity? Can you, you know, help me to, to understand everything that you've done in light of my education and in light of what I've been taught in secular education? So the next day, um, without being told about my prayer, my mother-in-law sent me a couple of books on intelligent design. And I think that one of, I've learned over time that I, I, one of God's, signatures is timing. So there's this beautiful little idiosyncrasy, you know, this, these books just show up right on the tail end of my prayer. Right. And I thought, okay, well that's, that's pretty cool. One of them was, um, Walt Brown's in the beginning. And I can't recall what the other was, but I, I was just blown away by some of the stuff that I read. Walt Brown is very credible. He was an engineer from MIT. Um, and he covered a whole range of topics in his book. I don't necessarily agree over time, I don't necessarily agree with all of the things that he said, but I think he had some really fascinating things to say. So I, I went further. You know, it, we it was not easy to get books in China. A lot of books are kind of banned. They only really allowed uh, Chinese books, but you could you could buy some Western books. It wasn't so. I I just had to download PDFs essentially, and I downloaded uh, Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ and uh, a couple of others, and I. Yeah, I decided to to give my life to to Christ. So within a couple of months, I was in northern China in the military capital, Dalian, and um, I was baptized in a bathtub there. And yeah, so I guess the rest is, as you could say, history. Uh, after about six or seven years, I decided to become an apologist. I've just felt it written on my heart. I I thought it might be ego at play. I thought, okay, well, I, I think I wanted to all, I always want to become an apologist, but you know, God, could you make this clear that it's not just, you know, my own ego at play here and that you, you actually want this of me. And I said this, this prayer in a park, you know, one night and, um, 
I got back into my car after I said this prayer and I remember turning on my car and the first thing I heard was this sermon. It was just the middle of a sermon and the speaker said, you should always be prepared to defend the gospel. And it, it, it just felt so significant, but I, I thought, you know what, God, that, that just could be a you know, coincidence. I'm an idiot. Could you maybe make this absolutely clear? Mm. Um, so I went to bed that night after hearing that, that pseudo confirmation. And the next morning I woke up and my wife said, hey, I, I got a text message from your, ne- your nephew. And my nephew is this brilliant guy. He just graduated from Cambridge. Uh, he studied primatology. And uh, I said, oh, that's interesting. What did he say? And she said, well, he says you should become an apologist. They're the new rock stars. And I thought, okay, thank you. Thank you, God. So it was like this really on the head sort of confirmation that I should get into apologetics. So yeah, I started the Intelligent Design Collective podcast where uh, more or less we we cover a range of topics uh, uh, similar to you, but it, there's no, not really any interviews. There's just, you know, some conversations going on. we we discuss intelligent design and we have a book club. So we, we read a book from a popular Christian author. Uh, it takes us months to go through the book because we sort of go through, go through it chapter by chapter and really, you know, comb through it as, as much as we can. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's essentially it. So, um, uh, you know, I, I continued my work in Vietnam and then, uh, yeah, now I, um, we just left Vietnam. We left in January. We were in England for several months, and then we just flew to Minnesota. I'm starting work at, at Cirrus Aircraft. So, yeah, good fun. I knew you were the right guy to have on the show, man. I'm like, I'm just captivated. I was just listening to, you know, these bits and pieces of your your journey, what happened to you. And, and I know something about trauma, physical trauma, and how that can change our perspective on life and the existence of God and the timing thing, super, super critical because you can't fake timing, you know, when things fall into place and when things make sense, it's just, that's God's way of doing it. I I really love everything you shared to this point, man. And it sounds like, you know, like you need to write a book about your life experience someday, man. Like whenever you feel like you get to that point, just write a book. Plenty of people would be very interested in, in listening to the elongated version of the story. It's awesome to find another, you know, another man in, in Christ who's just not ashamed to use his gift. Because if I'm an elbow and you're the knee, I, neither one of us could say to each other that there's no importance. Because if the elbow's function is to reach and grab a cup to give the body water, then it it couldn't look down at the kneecap and say, Hey man, you're worthless. Like, look what I can do because the kneecap carries the body (laughs) across the room to get the cup, you know? And that's why I love connecting with people as they share their diversity of gifts and uh, to be unashamed about it, man. What an introduction, dude. It sounds like (laughs) when you got in that fight over there, um, I like before you even said it, I'm just thinking of like the Jackie Chan movies or John Claude Van Damme, you know, like just throwing down out, out in Asia. And, and most of the listeners know my wife is from Southeast Asia and I love the culture, I love the movies. And thank God where she's from is pretty peaceful. They're the only Christian nation yeah. in the Far East. So they have some morals there, but that's terrifying to to hear about China and their society literally not having that good Samaritan mentality. I think that that's 
one of the highest things I, the Bible says, you shall know those who belong to me by the love they have for one another. Like the Good Samaritans is one of those staple things for me. Slowing down and helping our neighbor, if we're not doing that, and we profess to believe in Christ, we, we might actually want to reevaluate what form of power are we walking in? Is it in love or is it just in reputation or is it in anointing or is it sometimes people have a difference of telling what the difference between an anointing is or talent? Yeah, man. So that, that bothers me to know that, you know, obviously there's nations all around the world and even our own nation here, Aleko, in the States, love is growing cold clearly as I feel like we move towards the end of the age. But for the general consensus to be in China that, hey, we're not even going to help this this young girl, young guy who whatever happened to them because we're going to be responsible for their hospital bill. Wow. That's, I didn't really know that was the case over there in China, but it doesn't surprise me with all the disconnect from truthful, solid information from one country to another these days. I feel like a lot of the news companies and all these big organizations that control a lot of the information, they just meander through and keep the confusion or the infatuation going with whatever is, you know, the new form of rock starism to captivate the minds of people to keep them from actually diving into what the raw, organic, high alert things are that are going on in the world around us. Yeah, yeah. a really good point. Yeah. It, the absence of good men is what lets darkness come in and be present. That's uh, Edmund Burke, right? Um, I have no idea. <laughs> um, really don't know. Like, I mean, I've heard a lot of people talk on that stuff before, but like my heart throbs with this idea of if I'm not a man in my neighborhood, What's going to keep the people from robbing my house, right? If, like, if we're not holding it down, if we're not being the light or the salt, if we're not flavoring our workplace and our household, from all the way back to the Greek poets, man, I'm a big fan of poetry. I write poetry myself. And you can see the glimmers of, you know, people sharing this undeniable truth that I feel like there, there's this part of us as human where we have value. We want to be valued. We want to be treated well, right? We're not just stardust um, fizzling at stardust. Like, you know, like we, we've been wonderfully and fearfully created. So sometimes I'll say something or feel something or you know, probably heard it somewhere else before, but I'll truly believe what I'm saying. And somebody say, Oh, is that this, this person's quote? And I'll just be like, dude, I have no idea, but I believe it. I'm just agreeing, you know, subconsciously with the idea that's relative to those of a sound mind. I don't know, man, but it's cool. It's there through a uh, cultural osmosis. You'll pick it all up. So, I mean, yeah, it's a great quote. It's a great quote. Um, but yeah, good points. Really good points. You know, God, God's given you the ability to, you know, have this education and this, this way of speaking, listening to you, has challenged even some things about the way that I think. And I've always been a fan of like, for example, like Chuck Missler. And, and here's the disconnect. The world thinks you're like a Neanderthal or like, you know, some, you're foolish, right? You're, oh, that's the old book campfire story mentality. And here we are with modern science and they're bold enough. They have the audacity to proclaim all these things in the name of stardust. And it's like, dude, there's plenty of people with the gift. Now, not that all of us are right at all times when it comes to what Chuck Missler's always said, but I'll tell you what, he's had me hanging off the edge of my chair and has challenged me to look into my Bible deeper, right? Like, I think more men need to be doing that. I truly do. Diving into the word of God, using their gift, exposing like, hey, this is where we can see this connect in the tangible real world. 
So take us on like a trip into, you know, your science background. How did that kind of work its way out? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, I, again, I, yeah, studied biochemistry. I, um, you know, I was raised in an Orthodox, Orthodox background, but I think that, um, secular education is going to naturally push people into finding a materialistic explanation for the universe. And, and it often goes that way because it says, well, you know, we don't see God per se, so it would be unscientific to, to make that proclamation. But when you consider how God interacts with people in the scripture and in real life, you notice that there's, there's a, a mark there that is, is replicatable, but is Im- impossible to write about in, in scientific journals. Because it's not something that can be really experienced in a group dynamic unless God wants it to be. So, for example, we were talking about the idiosyncrasy thing, right, or, or God's timing, right? And oftentimes when, when God's timing is, is the answer to the prayer, just something really significant happens, but it's, you know, it's not that amazing, but it's just the timing of it all. It's not something you can really explain to somebody else. Uh, even a Christian, you know, like a, say, for example, you know, some something need to happen in order for a prayer to be answered, like a package need to show up. Well, you could you could say that, you know, you didn't think that package was going to show up, but it showed up, you know, and there was impossible circumstances because of it. But people would just kind of raise an eyebrow and say, well, that's great. You know, that's that's fine. But what do you want me to do about it? Right. And how do you find God from that? But that that to me walks hand in hand with the account of the biblical God. A lot of what he does is personal, and it's meant solely for you. And I think that that's important because, you know, if everyone were to be able to tether themselves to a personal experience that you had, and then all of a sudden have their faith enriched, well, that would be great, but it would be a zero effort thing on their part, right? Mm-hmm. So they wouldn't really have to do the uh, do the uh, the legwork in order to, you know, create that relationship with the Father as well, right? So I think that... Um, you know, the experience of God is a very personal one, although it can be a group thing, you know, that, that does happen from time to time in the scripture. Um, and that's, that's something that really is not, you know, something you can put into a scientific journal. Um, now when it comes to intelligent design, um, you know, Missler, I, I recall listening to Missler. I thought he was pretty interesting and he touches on some, some very popular, popular things in his talks. I think that he gives more of a campfire version of, of intelligent design. Um, but he does touch on one of the most important philosophical arguments, and that was Paley's watchmaker argument. Do you, do you remember that one? Vaguely. <clears throat> okay. So, uh, you know, British theologian, William Paley, uh, he, he put this argument out there and it's been replicated in a number of different ways, but it's one of the most compelling philosophical argument and arguments, and it tethers itself to the science, right? So science and philosophy often need to be blended together in order to make assumptions about, you know, grand unifying cosmology, right? <clears throat> That's essentially what metaphysics is, um, or, you know, um, cosmology, right? So there's a number of things we just don't know about with regard to deep space or the creation of the universe, uh, so we take the science that we can observe on Earth and we make a big assumption, a big philosophical assumption about the universe. And that's where we get you know, our, opinions, our opinions from. <clears throat> so William Paley once stated that if you came across a watch sitting in the sand at the beach, 
and you pondered its origins while analyzing it. So you picked up a Seiko, you know, that you found in the sand, right? Your first assumption would likely not be that over millions of years and through chance processes, atoms spontaneously gathered through the lineage of random mutations and environmental adaptations, right? So you would also likely not assume that the watch had ancient ancestors, which formed self-replicating cells that then bunched into more complex forms and eventually advanced onto dividing in asexual reproduction, or rather uh, reproduction without two people, but one person, right? So it was just one watch reproducing like a cell, right? Which is how they say humans started, you know, you know, when we were once single-celled organisms, we were dividing and then eventually we somehow spontaneously produced a completely compatible reproductive partner, which is another thing. That's another, you know, uh, rabbit hole altogether, but I'll, I'll, I'll maybe get into that later. Okay. So, uh, you know, if you were observing this watch, you would probably also find it hard to believe that it, you know, reproduced sexually or it had maybe parents that you know, produced you know, two slightly less advanced watch. That's two slightly less advanced watches that produced it, a slightly more advanced watch, uh, which walks hand in hand with evolutionary theory, right? So, without without question, many people would acknowledge that a watch filled with cogs, you know, watch hands, numbers, and a steel casing, and some some type of power source like a battery, falling together by complete accident or natural randomness is absurd. So what is fascinating is that while some would view this as silly, I think most people would view that as silly, uh, the human wrist that a watch would be resting on is exponentially more complicated than the watch itself. The watch is what you would call uh, an open loop system in engineering. So an open loop system has only a few controls or feedback items integrated into its design. These are typically used to tweak activity variables in order to promote the preferred efficiency of the item in the open loop system. So with a watch, you've got a little crown or maybe a couple of buttons. You've got the ability to remove the battery or put the battery back in. Another example would be maybe a washing machine. Depending upon the quantity of garments or how dirty they were, a user could adjust the controls to a particular length of time and intensity in order to generate a desired output. Inside the washing machine, there are some simple machine parts, maybe even a basic computer. But most importantly, the washing machine needs repair and is not self-aware. And it doesn't legitimately know if the clothes are clean or not, akin to the watch. The watch doesn't know what time it is. It's just, you know, it's created to, to tell the time. Exactly. But the wrist that the watch would be resting on, however, is what you would call a hyper-complex closed loop engineering system. A closed loop system is generally defined as a mechanical device that has self-regulation over one or more variables in its operation processes, mostly without control interaction or input. So they vary from open loop systems because they typically have both hardware or moving components and software, which controls and measures operations to maintain desired output. Closed loop systems are very challenging to create and typically can be far from flawless. So one example of this would be a window near a thermostat, right? So that's a simple closed loop design, you know, during, during the winter, you know, uh, if, if the window was open, it would cause the room to overheat because the thermostat was detecting that, you know, cold air was hitting it and the room was too cold, right? So in the case of the wrist, what is observed 
is a closed loop system that can adapt to ambient conditions. Fight off potential invaders uh, is largely self-maintaining and is controlled by software, in this case, human consciousness. So from an engineering perspective, the wrist is many orders of magnitude more complex than the watch. And more baffling would be the notion of, an, you know, so the wrist is a, what you would call a relatively simple part of the body. You know, think of an eye falling together by evolutionary accident, even throughout millions of years. Many biologists make this claim about life in general while not even ruminating on the complexity of the eyes or the brains or the digestive systems that most life forms possess. So as an attempted foil in the 1700s, uh, philosopher David Hume suggested that living systems only have the appearance of machines and also said that, you know, unless it can be proven that living systems are machines at the molecular level, that the watchmaker argument is irrelevant. Darwin himself said that if it could be proved that at the microscopic level cells are complex, his entire theory would be upended as well. And lo and behold, the electron microscope was invented. And modern microbiology demonstrated that even the simplest organisms are complex machines beyond our imaginations. Uh, so, you know, Michael Denton, a, a British Australian biochemist, noted that although the tiniest bacterial cells are incredibly small, each is in effect a super miniaturized factory containing thousands of exquisitely designed pieces of intricate molecular machinery made up of, you know, 100 billion atoms, far more complicated than any machine ever built by man and absolutely without parallel in the machine world. Uh, there's another quote that I like from astrophysicists uh, Geraint F. Lewis and Luke A. Barnes, and they defined life as a miracle of complexity in every single cell. Uh, they also noted that cells have machinery for moving themselves, tagging and transporting other molecules, processing food, defending against invaders, DNA replication and repair, creating proteins as well as receiving and sending outside messages. Cells can also duplicate themselves in a very short amount of time. And they finally noted that, you know, computers created by humans are good, but they don't even come close to this. So what's significant about this is um, biologists are often the only ones who tend to make this claim about, about life, that it just gradually gets more advanced. But in fact, we, we don't see this in, in any data. Um, because it violates what we call the, well, the laws of physics, right? So the, 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 uh, violates entropy and thermodynamic equilibrium constant and entropy more or less suggests that things decay over time, unless there's some type of intelligent input. So for example, um, you know, you have a, a, a baby that's produced, which is this hyper complex thing with, you know, consciousness and, it's essentially a, a, a perfect machine that will last for 80 to 100 years, depending on, you know, environmental uh, factors. Uh, but the only reason it exists or was produced was because two intelligent uh, beings put it together, right? But when you, you don't have some type of intelligent input, uh, entropy takes hold of things. And case in point would be uh, you know, the earth or, or, you know, something decaying, falling apart, you know, take, for example, here's a clumsy analogy, but, uh, you know, I think Missler used this one, you know, your, your room over time, it's going to just become ugly if you're not constantly fixing it, organizing it, putting it back in order, because that is essentially what entropy is. Things decay and sort of 
fall apart over time if there's not some type of intelligent input. And thermodynamic equilibrium constant states that all matter trends toward spreading evenly, right? So it's the reason why you don't, you know, all the air in your room doesn't uh, bunch up in one corner and suffocate you, right? Because matter trends towards spreading evenly. So a planet forming or life self-forming against these two laws, entropy, which means everything is decaying, or thermodynamic equilibrium constant, which says that everything spreads evenly, means that there has to be some type of intelligent input. You have physicists like, um, I know this is very long-winded, so stop me if I'm going too far, but uh, no, you have physicists, you know, people like um, uh, Brian Cox or Brian Greene, uh, who are two very famous physicists, and I, I actually enjoy their books, state that you might have had things like pockets of entropy or pockets of disentropy, right? So times when entropy slowed down and all of a sudden, you know, a, a single cell could form. But the simple fact of the matter is we've never witnessed that. And there's no reason we would ever have, um, there's, there's nothing that we've seen in nature or observable science that would lead us to believe that. All we know is that the universe is in a state of decay and we have these hyper complex things in, in the form of, of life. Um, statistics analysis, uh, sorry, sorry, statistics analysts say that the odds of, of, uh, something becoming unlikely are typically around one in a thousand, right? So the odds of life appearing from nowhere are, are, you know, exponentially greater than that. So I think it was, uh, Dr. Stephen C. Meyer of Cambridge who said that the odds of forming a functional cell through absolute chaos and entropy from a proposed amino acid rich primordial pool, which is what, what some people suggest is, you know, you know, what caused life on earth is more than one chance in a hundred thousand trillion, trillion, trillion. Let me see. How, let me look at my notes here. Let me see if, uh, okay. A hundred thousand trillion, 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 trillion. How many zeros is it until it's considered absurd? Uh, it's, it's it's unbelievable no i'm tracking with what you're saying and this is really good because a lot of the times culture will train us to see only through the perspective that's of value to that organization that school or that consumer system right let's look at what other people said let's look at the physics the structure of this world around us and try to make sense of it my biblical filter will register hey this verse may very well have been in regards to the unknown information. Christ says, I hold all things together. Well, it's not until modern day that we'd learn about laminin, this you know, cell adhesion protein molecule that's shaped naturally in, in the shape of a cross. It's like the rebar of the human body. When you're saying this stuff, man, it's, it's really developing this deeper hunger and excitement within me because I feel like we're systematically undoing <laughs> the tainting of, you know, the world's agenda to remove Christ from the forefronts of our mind. He says, all things were created through him, for him and by him. And I think there's nothing wrong with taking this scientific style approach to just looking at the world around us and then also bathing into the scriptures and like a Berean, looking for, for where they connect. Where do you think science does draw the line in between what's natural to supernatural? Do you see a like sacred divide in between the two categories of where they're like, no, that's too far. We don't even go there. Yeah, that's a good question. I think that it's a bit subjective in, in terms of what my answer might be, but 
Um, I think it's it's pretty obvious to the public that um, the scientific process is actually a it's actually a beautiful process when you think about it in you know, the way we discern things. But scientists themselves don't need to be objective, and that's that's proved time and time again in, in terms of uh, what we see in terms of the actions of, of science. No matter what what camp you fall in with regard to, and this is a bit of a touchy subject, but the COVID nineteen camp. No matter, no matter what camp you fall into, you see that there's a, a complete lack of objectivity with with scientists. And this is kind of a roundabout way of answering your question, but scientists will do um, whatever it takes to promulgate their own success, whatever that might that might look like for them. You know, maybe it fiscal success or or you know maybe notoriety, you know, popularity. Um, and I do believe that there are, there are many scientists, even secular ones out there that are, are, are out for the greater good. They're genuinely curious, but oftentimes you see flighty claims being made, yeah. um, or maybe even slightly erroneous ones that are, are based on the kernel of, of truth that will increase their chances of funding that will increase their chances of, of, you know, notoriety. And one, one, one thing comes to mind would be, um, uh, for example, I've got to recall the names of the planets. I think it was Kepler 186F and Trappist 1D. They they constantly go on about these two uh, planets in a, 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 they're in a different different um, system altogether, right? And using Doppler effect, they're able to determine that these planets are in the Goldilocks zone, and that means it's the, the perfect distance from their star to harbor life, right? Not too hot, not too cold, the right size. Um, using, using Doppler effect, right? So it's, it's a, it's a very sketchy way to try to determine, uh, where these planets are to begin with, right? So, because you have things like gravitational lensing, which distorts our field of view, you have a variable speed of light theory, which suggests that the speed of light is not constant. It, it can change from time to time. And then you have, you know, human instrument limitations. We're using, you know, pretty primitive stuff to to make very big claims about about these planets, and there's a lot of chance that it could be slightly inaccurate, if not mostly inaccurate. Though I like this type of talk; I think it's very interesting. There, the scientists are more or less saying, "Hey, you know what? These are these can these could have life." So, you know, I'll, I'll propose things like this to, to my students and say, well, you know, why, why would scientists constantly go on about this? Why would they, you know, report it to the media? And the students, you know, oftentimes, uh, you know, will we'll get the answer right. You know, they have a more simplified way of looking at things, but, you know, they'll say, well, money, right? You know, it essentially means funding for them. And that's exactly the truth. Um, you know, even if it, it's not to line their own pockets and they just want to, you know, let's just say they have a very magnanimous perspective and they just want to grow their program, making a crazy claim is going to bring attention to your program. It's going to gain the attention of investors. Um, so this is, again, this is a very roundabout way of answering, but I suppose providing context is really important. I think that, you know, the line can be shifted wherever it needs to be shifted as long as as long as it will bring attention to a program, it won't stomp on that, you know, scientist in questions work. Um, you know, there's a lot of scientists who have done, done work and that has been upended by recent discoveries that will defend their work to the grave, uh, only because it just, you know, the, the new discovery 
kind of discredits what they've done, right? Yeah. And there's a lot of scientists that have completely made things up because of because of um, you know the attention it brings. One one that comes to mind that's still in textbooks today is um, uh, okay, uh, Ernst Haeckel. About a hundred and I want to say 110 years ago, 120 years ago. You have to look this up. I don't recall the date. He falsified sketches of embryos. And what he did was he drew gill slits into embryos um, of, of different animals. He had humans, uh, you know, animal, a variety of animals. And he essentially, you know, indicated that these were gills. And what the implication was, was that, well, you know, in, in the womb, all animals go through a version of the evolutionary process. So you can see that we were all fish at one point. But the simple fact of the matter is that they, they're not gills at all. They have nothing to do with the respiratory system. They're just these ridges um, that are analogous structures. And they, yeah, they, they, don't, they don't point to us being fish or any animals being fish other than fish in the slightest. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but the thing is, uh, you know, I have recent textbooks from, from Cambridge, uh, some textbooks from the U.S. that I've taught out of that still indicate this to this day. And I guess it's an example of authoritative parroting where, you know, people hear somebody who they think is important saying something and they just parrot it. They, they just repeat what, what they said because they don't, you know, really want to look into it. They're just kind of, they've got their own worries, right? So I guess the point I'm trying to make is as long as it doesn't stomp on the scientists, the scientists in questions work, um, and as long as they think that they can generate interest i don't think that the line is stratified you know it can move wherever they need it to move um and, and you see that today with with things like um uaps where that was or ufos or whatever that where that was kind of a taboo subject maybe two decades ago or even five years ago but yeah. there's a lot of information being released about them and now all of a sudden you have people like uh, some of my favorite authors like michio kaku and uh you know, I, I don't, I can't say anyone else, but, you know, off the bat, you know, um, Michio Kaku, I remember he, he came on a couple of podcasts recently and he's been on the news and he's discussed, you know, the, the very notion of, 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 you know, UFOs, something that would have maybe gotten you laughed out of some serious circles perhaps a few years ago. So yeah, the line can move wherever it needs to move. There's, you know, if, you know, yeah, it, it can be wherever it needs to be. That was a very roundabout way <laughs> of answering your question. So, no, I, no, I think you actually got to the root of the issue of the question being that the context is so important because being aware of the fact that they move the line in accordance with their agenda helps us to then not be so easily led astray by whatever the information that's floating around today, right? Like the premises of, of the show, like in my the notes for the podcast is. Listen, there's a million messages and a million signals that are causing confusion and chaos. Let's take this journey together and, you know, discovering this ultimate truth, right? Like, what do we believe is true? So to see how they just like manipulate where the line falls from the natural world to what some consider to be this supernatural world, they bend and, and manipulate that depending on what their agenda is or what's relevant at the time. I think you kind of giving the context and sharing that perspective actually was much more respectable in my opinion. You know, I've heard, I think it was Dr. Chuck Missler talk about take a piece of string and you cut that piece of string in half. And you would imagine you could just keep cutting that other half in half, right? And you just keep doing that forever. But 
you eventually get to this this part where it loses a property called locality right? mm. and it's like that little piece of string now just becomes everywhere at once it, it's it falls into like the classification of plasma the bible's always said we are the shadow of a larger reality i believe i have this biblical filter um my aspirations clearly outweigh my education i let everybody know that <laughs> like i uh, you know think crazy at times and say things that's not always exactly like coming from you know the camp of certainty but maybe philosophizing a little bit at times hearing that kind of information from chuck missler when you're a little kid you believe you already have this like mindset where you would already believe if somebody said hey a 20-foot bird flew by up there right or like an angel or god's real or whatever like you would be easy in belief and i'm not talking about being gullible the world would be like oh you're just depicting a childlike mentality in an adult who would just believe anything and you guys are the very reason why things are wrong no no no, no. honestly look at the placebo effect but there's power in belief like even if you believe in you know something that would be contrary to what i believe in there's still power in it so there's this like realm behind the realm that like i've always felt sensitive to a lack of and for me personally, I think the supernatural world is going to um, be that timing, that power, that almost undisputable personal experiences that, that happen intermittently over the course of the experiencer's life that reveal the realm within the realm. Mike Heiser wrote, the biblical narrative has this thread all the way through it of this angelic world, you know, this, this other realm, God being spirit and, and inhabiting eternity. But yet we're operating in this physical, temporary world. I know it sounds like I'm jumping around a lot. No, no, it's fine. It's fine. This realm between the realm, if you have a computer, it's just it's material. It's plastic and polymers or whatever, gold, you know, whatever, however you make a computer. You could upload 500 gigabytes of information to the computer. If you put it on a scale, it still weighs exactly the same. You know, nothing changes. It weighs the same without the information uploaded to the computer as if it would if it was a completely blank and empty hard drive with with no information on it. I liken that kind of thought process to like that realm behind this physical realm. The word of God being, you know, sharper than a double-edged sword, man. It's it separates. It teaches us to speak life. This old papyra, this Bible book that has transformed the hearts of men and women for thousands of years. That to me is like the evidence of the behind the scenes realm. You know, this supernatural document that doesn't abide by the laws of physics, biology, or um, science in general. Something's happening that we can't quite get a, our grasp on. And the guy next door, the lady down the street knows this. How does science in general deal with the supernatural? Look at like Albert Einstein with spooky action at a distance. You know, any of these like great influencers throughout history, and they're always hinting at this strange world that we can't get under the microscope. I don't know. Sorry for going on such a long rant there, but I no, it's great. It's great. Yeah, yeah. I just see like the cultural, you know, the cultures of the world, the education system, religion, this consumerism mentality, the violence, entertainment, the individual traumas, as well as you know the large scale traumas. Uh, you know, just look at twenty twenty and the pandemic, what that's done to people mentally, and I see all of that in a unique way to an extent all of it has in my opinion been manipulated and used the lines have been changed and moved around in order to keep people from really being able to connect 
you know, keep people from being cordial with each other, like, and having a good, honest discussion, even if we disagree, still being respectable enough to share information. Like, what are we going to do with frequency? The human body, the super complex machine, we can put off a frequency of love or, or fear, whatever it may be. You know, all these natural organic materials do put off a frequency. What world does that operate in? Is that on the cusp of the supernatural side of things? Do you know anything on, on that? No, you know, that's that's probably out of my, my field of study. Um, but yeah, to, to comment on, on some of the other things that you said, uh, and I, I do have some some thoughts on, on your question, but uh, to comment on some of the things that you said, I think you brought up some really interesting points. You, you talked about splitting the line or, or cutting the line and how uh, you know people at, at one point thought that you could divide matter down infinitely because it was the primary building block of existence. But the, the measurement you're talking about is Planck length. And uh, it's uh, 10 to the minus 35th that at a certain point, uh, matter loses locality, right? And that if you combine that with um, the idea of atoms, uh, like, you know, for example, it's helium, you, uh, the, the distance between the nucleus and the electron, if you were to blow it up, is about the size of a football field. So, uh, sorry, if you were to uh, proportionately make the, the, the atom bigger, the, the distance between the middle of the atom and the outside of the atom is the distance of a football field at a certain size, right? So um, what the implication is that atoms are mostly empty space. Yeah. And what's uh, the reason why you have things that feel solid, the reason why you can't pass your, your hand through your desk is because of the electromagnetic force. So um, a, a reductionist perspective of that is that everything that you see and everything that you touch is light. It's electromagnetism. It's, it's, it's um, almost a thought. And, um, you know, that, that, that kind of walks hand in hand with simulation theory. But when you consider uh, the notion of uh, NDEs or near-death experiences, I, I think one of the most fascinating things that I, I read about, sorry, I speak about this as if you know about it. I'm assuming you do because it's in the zeitgeist. But, um, uh, you know, these people that, you know, have had very significant and almost provable, some, in some cases very provable, uh, near-death experiences where they they you know have a a vision of heaven, and one of the reoccurring motifs of of those experiences is that people say that the the realm of heaven is more real than what they experienced on Earth. Earth feels like the fuzzy sort of hazy realm, as heaven is often depicted in TV shows. It's this fuzzy hazy place with clouds and you know people have wings and all that stuff. But they say that going back to Earth, Earth feels like the place that's not real. And heaven feels like a place that they've been gone from, you know, and it feels like they've gone back home. Um, so I find that really fascinating, you know, this, this notion of a, of a, a simulated world. And I think one of the most, this, this is a bit fringe. This is a bit, um, perhaps even esoteric and, and, and clumsy as well. But I think one analogy that our book club stumbled on for the relationship of God, the father and, God, the son, you know, Christ, obviously, uh, and his interaction with the world is um, something that humans have stumbled on through technology. And that's that's the video game analogy that God, the father is the person in control of the, I guess, the character and Christ is the character in the video game. And we're sort of the NPCs. But that that again, that's a bit a bit silly. Obviously, we're not NPCs. We have consciousness. We have thought we have we have will. Yeah. But um 
that said, you know, something that humans have have sort of stumbled on that, uh, you know, God is is the creator. He's he's, you know, in control of every atom, as as we know, through the cosmological proof for God. Um, and that uh, the video game world is this place where, you know, he or you know, the simulation world is this place where he interacts with us and he's able to to speak to us through his his son, Christ, you know, so. Again, that's clumsy, and you could pick all kinds of holes in it. There are there are issues with that, but I really like that analogy as it was brought up a few months ago in our book club. Yeah, um, you had mentioned uh, you know, the notion of uh, children understanding and believing things, and um, I, I wrote down a note as you were saying that it was um, Alison Gopnik from UC Berkeley, uh, which is a very liberal institution, and she herself is an atheist, and she tries to promote atheism, but she had determined in a study of young children, and I don't know what the sample size was here, that children as young as five, even children brought up in atheist households, um, invoke a godlike designer in order to explain the world around them. So it's naturally built into children to see a creator in, in the world. And it has to be, I wouldn't say pulled out of them, but it has to be blocked or covered with, you know, liberal sort of materialist inculcation in order to stop that or stymie that, that, that progression. Um, but you know, you know, with regard to, and I'm, I'm jumping from place to place and maybe just trying to comment on what you, what you said, I think you had some really interesting points when it comes to technology. I think it's, it's really fascinating. And I, I'm learning the Bible more and more as I go along. Uh, so I'm by no means a biblical scholar, but, um, it's, it's one of the most fascinating journeys I've, I've been going on recently, but it brings to mind the you know the notion of the unholy trinity as some people call it and you know from from revelation you have you know sort of a, the counterpoint to the real holy trinity which would be i guess uh, the devil i suppose or or satan as you know being that version of the father and you have you know obviously the the two antichrist figures in revelation which could be i guess some bastardization of the son and some people have, and this is reading a narrative into the Bible. This isn't necessarily provable, but I thought it was kind of interesting. I heard this perspective recently that the media is a version of the unholy spirit. It's a way of producing information quickly that's false and sort of controlling the minds of uh, of the world. And I didn't take it lightly, even though you know it's 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 something I would want to look into. And I, I don't know if it's completely biblically sound. I didn't take it lightly because I thought that's really fascinating when you think about it, because the name of of the devil in Greek, the Avalos. The literal translation is to be of two minds, right? The Avalos. Um, but the colloquial translation of devil is the slanderer, right? So to take the truth and skew it slightly. And you have a lot of half, I, I think more than just direct evil in, 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 you know, the media, you know, the internet or on TV, more than direct evil, you have a lot of half truths. You have a lot of half truths being presented, where people are like, okay, well, that's true, but that's not, but I'll still roll with it to see where this goes in, you know, entertainment or even in the news, right? I think that's really interesting that there's, it's almost um, the media in very, very many ways has the same modus operandi as, as the devil, you know, just slightly misleading things that uh, cause people to skew their perspectives. Yeah, that was, that was a bit of a word salad. So with all the different messages that are going out causing a lot of confusion and chaos people do listen to podcasts now I'm not saying that they take anything that i produce or other people produce as ultimate truth but 
there's nothing wrong with tossing these ideas around and sharpening up on different perspectives. Personally, I like to go to the Bible then and fight God in and just say, Lord, give me the wisdom to know what I need to know for, for your purposes for me. Cause me to be a Berean in this. Help me to not lose that love for my household, for my family, for my neighbors. Help me to be the essence of the very thing that I desired when I invited you in and I repented in my heart. And to kind of tie it back to the beginning here quick, when you're talking about what happened to you over there, you know, outside of Wuhan in China, when you got attacked, for all those listeners that may have experienced that or know someone close to them who has had a near-death experience, a lot of what me and Aleko are talking about is going to become a natural interest if you're an experiencer to the extent of um, you've been shaken and woken up out of the reality of consumerism and what my favorite sports team is or my favorite shoes or what my dream car is. Like if that world comes crashing down at any point in time through our temporary existence as strangers that are passing through on this earth, right? And there's some ups and some downs. There's some highs and some lows. We all know that each one of us has a story that at times can be beautiful, ugly, good. If you've ever come to the point where you've almost lost everything, I'm talking about literally you're about to separate from your physical body and enter into this unknown world that every religion and culture has philosophized about since the beginning of time. It's ground shattering to the point where if you're not interested in who God really is, what's really going on around you. You didn't really have the experience. <laughs> I know that's a bold claim, but if it all comes crashing down, man, and you survive, you're going to want to know what happened if you didn't survive, you know, <laughs> or, or why did it come crashing down? So it, it, for me, Aleko talking with you and diving into these topics is literally what helps, what helps me be able to sleep at night. You know, I have so many questions and thoughts and, and I love reading the Bible and I'm a watchman on the wall in my own opinion, looking at the world around me and just talking with God and saying, Lord, protect me from this. Lord, what do I need to know about that? Not insinuating that I always get the right response from him because I still sure, sure. wrestle with sin. I won't sit here and say that, you know, I have no sin. I see it as being critical to encourage the listeners, the body of Christ out there. Don't be afraid of the fringe topics. The Bible's not going to disappear if we ask weird questions about it. We're not going to get scolded by God if we talk about science or the world around us, whether it be megalithic structures or energies, frequencies. Be careful of new ageism, you guys. Stay Steer clear of anything. Like the Bible says, test all spirits, right? If, if um, they confess Christ is who he says he is, if the Messiah, the Lamb of God has come in the flesh and he has risen again, that is from God. Now, we all are in a state of coming to perfection if we believe in Christ. He's working this out in us. Aleko, I've listened to just enough of your episodes since discovering you that I know you're going to continue to help me in an area that I don't know where to go with some of this information. There's so many signals out there that sometimes you just know deep down in, this is somebody I feel a level of comfort listening to, allowing to challenge the way that I think about it, as long as my response is to always dig back into the word and, and to pray in our secret place about a lot of these topics that come up. So I hope to have you back for part two. I feel like so many more questions, but I know we both got the day ahead of us. We're celebrating July 4th today. Oh yeah. So yeah. Fill in anything that uh, you feel is necessary as we kind of wind down here and then share with the audience where they can find you books, your content websites. 
Definitely. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it's comments on, on some of the things that you said. I think you, you brought up some some really great points. And, and I think that, um, as you mentioned, you know, seeking Christ prayerfully is is the most important thing. Um, I think Missler even once said, um, if if a momentary exposure to this this material doesn't lead you into an obsession, then I would argue that you're not paying attention or you didn't have the experience, right? So um, it just kind of walks hand in hand with what you said. And I think he also, you know, he suggested, you know, people keep a, a journal of things that confuse them. So if you, you know, so you come across something that's just really esoteric, but you know what happened um, and you're perplexed by it, uh, write it down and pray about it. And in, in some way, some, you know, some crazy happening, you know, be it, um, you know, a friend that comes and talks to you or uh, something you hear on the radio when you're, you're switching channels, God will answer the prayer if you have a question. Um, he won't always give you the answer you want, but he will tell you what you need to know. So um, I think that, uh, yeah, if people want to come and and listen, it is, it's the Intelligent Design Collective podcast. We're trying to switch over to IDC because it's a you know, big mouthful um, IDC podcast. Um, you can, yeah, you can, you can find us at that podcast. I, I also have a book on Google Play audiobooks and on audible it's the pillars of intelligent design uh, to be honest with you i i just haven't had the time to promote it yet um but I, you know a lot of people have listened to it for free on episode 137 of our podcast so you can just go there and listen to it for free um but yeah we'd, we'd be happy to have more people join our book club as well which is about a third of our podcast so we yeah we spend about 90 minutes. It used to be every week, but now we're going to be doing it every other week. And we just get together and we talk about a couple of chapters. We've covered a lot of books so far. We started with uh, Michael S. Heiser's The Unseen Realm. You brought up Heiser earlier. I thought he's pretty interesting. Um, you know, we've, we've done done quite a few, but we normally, you know, a lot of book clubs, the format is you read the book and then you come and give your, your thoughts on it. But, um, you know, myself being a teacher, I knew people would skip chapters. So I thought, uh, okay, we'll, we'll just go, we'll go chapter by chapter. That way it's also, you know, you don't feel overwhelmed by it and, uh, you know, just come and give your thoughts. Um, but yeah, we've done Heiser. We've done, um, five proofs of the existence of God by Edward Fazer. We've done, uh, Craig S. Keener's miracles, which, uh, which was, a, um, a paradigm shifting book for one of our members. We have this, this gentleman who's in our, our club, who was a Mountie. So he was a former police officer from Canada and um, he was a good guy, but he was mildly skeptical when he started the book club, but he stuck with it. And when we read miracles, it's a real quick story. I'm getting chills as I'm sharing it, but he adopted a baby in Vietnam. And um, evidently I didn't know this. If you leave a baby lying in one position for too long, the head can become misshapen because uh, they has a very soft skull. So you have to turn the baby from time to time just to make sure that doesn't happen. So when they received the baby that they adopted, the head was severely misshapen because of, you know, it was left in, in the crib for, for too long. And evidently it takes, like it could take up to a year, maybe even longer with um, some type of brace that's very painful for the child to, you know, correct the head to make it symmetrical, right? Well, in the middle of reading Craig S. Keener's Miracles, what they they did was they took before and after pictures. The before picture was was taken, and then they laid their hands on the baby and and 
prayed over it in the name of Christ. And uh, they woke up the next morning and the baby's head was symmetrical. And um, ever since then, he's been obsessed, you know, so he's, he's been absolutely obsessed. He's, he's all, all hands on deck. And I'm, I'm getting chills just as, as I share this with you, because uh, yeah, it, it's, it's for real. Yeah, like the, the whole thing, the whole business is, you know, we can, we can uh, scholasticize it and turn it into a cerebral pursuit, but um, nothing is, is more important than, than knowing Christ. Bro, that's my greatest hope is that people listen to the podcast, they read the Bible, they start to believe, take it serious or ask questions and find themselves in a unique scenario where God becomes real to them. So hearing that Amen. from you, brother, that's like, that might be the whole reason we did this show today. Somebody hears and that keeps the whole thing going, the beauty unfolding. So pleasure uh, talking about Christ and uh, meeting someone who shares the love. It was, it was very edifying for me. So I was glad to be here. Well, that's it. That's the show, everybody. If you found this episode to be helpful, encouraging, you learned something new, it challenged you to think deeper about the world around you, the days that we live in, or this ancient Bible book that I hold so dear to my heart, I ask you to share this episode with a friend, a family member, a co-worker. Coming to you from Southeastern Pennsylvania, God bless America. Listen, what I'm saying, you guys, is these topics right here, they're covering the chasm of lost information and giving us an ability to connect some dots as we take this ride together and just interview different people from different backgrounds and gather information. I'm not asking you guys to believe everything that you hear on these episodes. Literally, the information is there for you guys to choose what you decide to do with it. For me personally... I don't believe every single thing I hear. I like to pray about it, to study, um, look into these topics and and really like let the time and the process happen for these things to kind of like resonate and settle with me because I don't like to be just easily led into, you know, some radical belief. Really, I mean, at the end of the day, I do have to gauge and evaluate and, and check the way that I process my information to make sure it's healthy. In accordance with, you know, a Berean mentality, because I believe personally for myself, I'm a watchman on the wall. I have a Berean mentality, which means I like to study daily with the readiness of mind and find within the word of God what what's tolerable or not. Testing all things and, and being ready in season and out of season. Flying under the radar, the information that literally is in the background that most people can't hear because there's so many other signals and messages that are just so much louder. And it is so important that we we have a plethora of information to spread out. So that's the idea of the show. Like I said, you listen this far, you're awesome. You're the reason. You guys are the reason. Let's keep this thing going.